Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Thank you all for returning back after this week's episode. I know a lot of people were not thrilled listening to an hour of Dale Griffith's testimony, uh, but it was done for a purpose. And part of that purpose is so that you'll appreciate my voice more when I'm back. Well, I think it worked based on the comments. Yeah, it was definitely not everyone's favorite episode. But like I said, there's a purpose behind it. And I'm joking about it being so that you'll appreciate my voice, of course. Uh, but there was indeed a purpose behind it. And we're going to get into that, I'm sure, through the course of this follow-up as Mike reads questions and feedback from all of you. I know, Mike, that we've got a few voicemails this week. Uh, so I think let's go ahead and take our first break for the ads here. And then we'll, we'll come right in with the voicemails. All right. Sounds good to me, man. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Hubble. I've been using Hubble contacts for months, and let me tell you what I love about them. I love that every morning I get to put in a new, fresh pair of lenses. I don't have to clean anything at night, and I don't have to mess with any solutions at all. And they're the least expensive contacts I've ever used. So are you tired of overpaying for uncomfortable contact lenses, and do you overwear your lenses to save money? Well, what if I told you that you can get a fresh pair of lenses every single day for less? 60 contacts for 30 bucks. Just do the math. That's only a dollar a day. This is half the price of other brands. Just go to HubbleContacts.com and get your first two weeks for free. Contacts are expensive because four companies control 97% of the market. Until now, Hubble sells directly to you so they can offer contacts at half the price. No more overpaying and no more overwearing. They've been featured in Vogue, GQ, TechCrunch, and Mashable. Hubble Contacts are taking the world by storm. Go to HubbleContacts.com to get your first two weeks of lenses for free. That's 15 pairs of lenses for free. You really can't beat this deal. Hubble is offering my listeners two weeks of free contacts. So go to HubbleContacts.com and get 20-20 vision for half the price. That's Hubble, H-U-B-B-L-E, Contacts.com. Today's episode is also sponsored in part by Stamps.com. So any of you that have been following along on social media know that this week has been Mail Week. We've joined all of our listeners together to compile lots of letters to send into the parole board in Texas pleading for the release of our Season 2 case, Mr. Edward Eights. So we have done a lot of mailing, and every time we think we're done, there's more to go out. And that's why I'm so thankful that we use Stamps.com here. 
because even for those last minute mailings, it doesn't mean we got to go get back in the car and make another trip to the post office. We can do everything from right here in the office. And postage rates have gone up again. So let Stamps.com keep your rates down with postage discounts of up to 40%. Discounts you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com saves you three cents on every letter you send. You're going to pay 2016 prices for 2018 stamps. Just use Stamps.com to automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter and package you send. They bring all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up and you're done. No more trips to the post office. And Stamps.com makes the whole process easy because they're going to send you a digital scale to automatically calculate the exact postage you need. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. I use Stamps.com because my time especially, but my money too, are important to me. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. All right, let's start with voicemails. Our first one's from Jennifer from Texas. Hi, Bob and Mike. This is Jennifer calling from Texas. Love the show. And first, I have to say, Bob, I think you are on the right path with the evidence you've given us so far. It definitely appears that it was someone who knew the boys who committed this crime. And I think it's great that you're looking into all this. My first question is, who was the witness that was on the stand for the episode this week? What kind of an expert is he? What is his background? And has he actually provided testimony on other cases that have received a conviction that were attributed to being cult murders? My second question is, was that all of the evidence they have on motive? Was that all of the evidence they have that this killing was an occult killing and not something else? Thanks for all your hard work. Love the show. Keep it up. Bye. Okay, thanks for calling in, Jennifer. And I don't have all the exact stats, but he did address this a little bit in the testimony. Um, so the the expert's name was Dale Griffiths, and he's actually he's from Ohio, I think. Um, he was a police officer for I think twenty six years, and I think he retired as a captain, and then he started doing consulting work on the occult and Satanism and things like that. He, according to his testimony at that point, he I think he said that he had actually testified as an expert in a case uh, that that he believed was an occult type murder. Uh, I think he said it was in Ionia, Michigan, which was not far from us, uh, and he did get a conviction. But it was a little strange because when he was asked about it, he couldn't remember the the defendant's name or anything. So we don't really have any details on it other than the case from Michigan that he he pointed out. Um, as far as the the state having other evidence of motive, we're going to get into all of that as as we move along because uh, there is a lot more to their case. As far as their case with of with this being a satanic cult motivated killing. There's not a whole lot more, and that's why I wanted to play his testimony, because he was the expert that the state used to convince the jury that this was indeed motivated uh, by a satanic cult or a cult ritual. So I hope that answers your question. Thanks for calling. Okay, this next voicemail isn't a question, but it's listener Shelley's view on the case. Hello, this is Shelley Cook. I'm out in um, Phoenix, Arizona. Long-time listener and excited to uh, that you're tackling this case. This is a case I absolutely, as a true crime fan, 
had never tackled just because I had young boy I have young boys that I'm raising and it's just hit too close to home. So I've never seen or heard any information about the case in detail before. So I'm excited that you're tackling this one. And I think you're doing a fantastic job. I just got done listening to the testimony of this so-called satanic expert or occult expert, and I am absolutely flabbergasted. How in the world did they get to this point of, it just it stood out to me as such an example of groupthink and hidden bias against even the possibility of somebody practicing Satanism that it just makes absolutely zero sense from an outsider's perspective. So I'm gobsmacked by that, and I can't believe that these jurors put any weight at all into this testimony. It's just a travesty. I'm almost in tears for these poor boys who were convicted of these crimes. Also, of course, you know, the, the actual victims of this horrible, horrible murders. But, I mean, I just, it's almost, you know, it's a double tragedy that these boys were, I don't even know how they got to the point of, I'm looking forward to next week's episode because I can hear how they got to the point of even pursuing these boys um, as suspects in the crime. But based on this crap that I heard today, hell no. There is nothing there. This guy is just adding to an already... I don't know, adding fuel to the flames, if you will, of a, of a bias that this, these jurors have, a fear of Satanism, which I think would be common in this, you know, um, Judeo-Christian culture in America. It's just crazy. Just crazy. Anyway, I'm looking forward to next week's episode and really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks for the voicemail, Shelley. And I think a lot of people feel the same sentiments. And and, and I, I will point out, like I said, there's more to the state's case than uh, what we just heard from, from Dale Griffiths. But it... Yeah, and and the reason you didn't hear from me a lot in that episode is because I didn't want to you know, until I wanted you all to hear it with unbiased ears before you know, so I could get your take on it before I gave you my take on it. And yeah, I agree. It's a it was it was kind of a sign of the times. It was it was a group think, and it was just in my opinion, uh, the idea of that being the motive. It was ridiculous, and and, and I don't think that Dale Griffiths at all. It, certainly, in my mind, did not do a good job of convincing me that that's what was happening. All right, and this last voicemail is from Marissa. Hi, my name is Marissa, and I'm loving your podcast. I thank you guys so much for doing everything that you do. I have some questions. One, I was wondering if you could talk about the qualifications regarding your the podcast that you just did, um, the qualifications of the witness who testified about the occult, what his qualifications are. I also wanted to know why would the police, the police canvassed, We've talked about how they canvassed just around the area where the boys were found rather than canvassing the neighborhoods in which the boys lived to get some of an idea. They canvassed all those houses. No one said they saw any kind of gathering or any kind of fire or anything like that. So why would the police still consider the fact that this was a satanic killing? Why would they still consider that a viable option as a lead. And the other thing that I had questions on is that it seems like the prosecutors and the defense attorneys kept saying the occult, quote-unquote, professional, knowledgeable person kept talking about how blood is the life force. And they kept asking about a lot of blood. I know the kids were, they had some wounds. I know um, that's now been established as post-mortem. But let's say the wounds were done pre-mortem, how much blood are we discussing? Because the boys were drowned. They did not exsanguinate and lose that much blood. I'm wondering if you have any kind of idea how much blood there might have been at the scene 
had the wounds been pre-mortem uh, wounds rather than animal predation wounds. Thanks again. Bye. Those are some really good questions, Marissa. Um, and I guess I'll kind of work backwards. As far as the blood, everyone agrees. Uh, I believe all the experts agree that Michael Moore and Stevie Branch died from drowning. That was their cause of death. The, the conflict comes with Christopher Byers, where Dr. Peretti says he testified that he bled to death. Now, his autopsy report doesn't say that. It says that he died from multiple injuries and drowning. But Dr. Spitz says that he just drowned, that there was no extinguination, or he, he didn't bleed to death. So that's up for debate. Uh, but so th- that's where the state was going with this with this theory. That's why they were asking about the uh, the amount of blood because they're they're claiming based on Peretti's testimony that Christopher Byers bled to death, but there was no blood present on the scene, and so that that raised a lot of problems. And we'll get into more of that when we get into more of the trial, which would be a little ways down the road. But but based on the medical uh, reasoning, so Dr. Peretti was asked on the stand. Um, you know, because he believes that the uh, the degloving the the emasculation of Christopher Byers was done pre mortem with a knife, and he was asked by the defense, you know, could you perform that that surgery? Could you perform that procedure in those conditions, like out in the open like that? And Purdy says, no, it would be very difficult. I'm not I'm not sure that I could. It would take it it would take a very skilled hand and a very sharp instrument to do it. Uh, and then they asked him. Could it be done in the water? Because again, there's no blood on the crime scene. There was there was none visible on the crime scene at all, uh, and so they were asking, could it be done in the water? Because the only other option there is that you know it was done in the water or in a in a remote location. And he says, no, he couldn't do it in the water. Uh, and so that's what the defense was getting at was, well, if he bled to death and that was that was a pre mortem wound where he was cut and bled to death, then where's all the blood? Now they they did go back later and do luminol testing. And and there was some luminol that lit up, and and uh, a listener uh, Jennifer Carlson did point out to me that in the diagrams where they did the luminol testing, they did actually mark out where the um, the bodies were laid on the they accounted for the fact that the bodies had been laid on uh, the creek side, so that's not where the luminol was lit up. It was a few places, but again, it was just it's it's completely inconclusive. They went back later. Luminol doesn't detect blood; it detects organic material from you know basically body fluids. So we're talking. Urine, semen, blood, anything like that will will light up from luminol, and it's you know it's it's a public place frequented by all kinds of animals. There's just no way of knowing if what lit up with the luminol was actually blood or if it was even from this crime scene. So the whole purpose of that line of questioning was for the prosecution to let Griffiths explain to the jury that the reason. There's no blood on the scene, maybe because blood is a life force with the occult, and therefore the the murderers, the occultists, the Satanists that committed this murder likely would have drank the blood or taken the blood with them. So that was the whole purpose behind that. Uh, and then getting back to what you started with in your voicemail, uh, as far as what are the credentials of Dale Griffiths. So here's the thing. Dale Griffiths, prior to his testimony that you heard, I removed the first about 12 minutes of his testimony. Uh, And that's because that was, um, it's an abstract. It was an in-camera review with the judge, which means basically the defense was challenging whether or not Dale Griffiths was actually an expert. Because that's just part of a procedure uh, in a criminal um, case like this, or anytime you're going to testimony, you can't just put anybody on the stand and say they're an expert and then present them to the jury as an expert. In most cases, 
both sides will stipulate, you know, say if you bring on, for example, Werner Spitz, you know, when Werner Spitz got on the stand, uh, the prosecutor for the defense, the prosecution side didn't challenge his expertise. They didn't try to say that he wasn't an expert. They'll just stipulate. We agree he's an expert and they move on. In Dale Griffith's situation, uh, the defense was arguing that this guy can't get on the stand and tell this jury what his his expert opinion is because they don't believe he's an expert. And so they're they're having a, an argument before the judge, and the judge ultimately made the decision to let him testify and qualified him as an expert. Now, I removed that for the episode and didn't mention it because, like I said earlier, I wanted you all to, to have your first listen to that testimony with unbiased ears, without hearing my opinion, without hearing that argument, just hear what he had to say. This was, you know, and, and we, we, of course, we always take some flack every episode. This case has some hostile people on both sides of it, and, and we just accept the fact that people aren't going to like everything we do. But for the, the people that believe the conviction was proper, some of them don't, didn't want that testimony being played, which I think is kind of telling, because for me, I played unedited and uncut the testimony of the state's expert witness and let them hear how he explained the theory of motive. So, but what I'm going to do now, because I think several people, not only in this voicemail, but also in emails and, and tweets and Facebook messages and all that, were asking about the credentials of Dale Griffiths. So now that you have all heard his testimony, I'm going to go ahead now and play that abstract testimony where we hear the prosecution and defense discussing the qualifications for Dr. Dale Griffiths. Uh, and this is for those of you that have watched uh, Paradise Lost. You saw just a short clip of this in the movie. Uh, and that's kind of the part the people that knew the movie were wondering where it is. That's why it wasn't included. And here it is, the full uh, in-camera review discussing whether or not Dale Griffiths could be considered an expert. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the court. Uh, is is going to give you a, a similar cautionary instruction. You're about to receive uh, evidence or testimony with regard to occultism, cultism, satanic affairs, and you are instructed and told that that testimony is to be considered only and solely for the limited purpose of establishing motive, intent, scheme, or design. All right, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Would you state your name and occupation for the jury? Dale W. Griffiths, Tiffin, Ohio. I'm a consultant. All right. And what type of consultant are you? I consult t uh, to criminal justice 
educators, uh, mental health people in the area of non-traditional groups. Are you married? Yes, married, 35 years, have three children. And uh, are they adult children? Yes, they are. One is a, uh, a photographer uh, with paper, another one operates a uh, uh, wholesale floral business, and my son uh, is in the construction engineer. Now, prior to becoming a consultant, what was your uh, work background? I uh, was 26 years with the Tiffin, Ohio Police Department, at which time I was uh, I retired out as a captain and second in command of the police department. And during the course of that uh, 26 years with the Tiffin, Ohio Police Department, were there periods, short periods of time where you went and worked with other law enforcement agencies? Yes, there was. All right. I worked uh, L.A. Police Department for two weeks, San Francisco two weeks, and since that time I've worked with other agencies for a long time. Okay. And in the course of those two-week stints with uh, the Los Angeles Police Department and San Francisco Police Departments, uh, what area did you work in? In the area of <coughs> cults and uh, non-traditional groups, occult groups. Okay. And what is your educational background? Graduated from uh, high school, have an associate degree in police science, a bachelor's degree in uh, psychology, master's degree in criminal justice, and a dissertation in criminal justice. And the uh, <coughs> the master's degree in criminal justice and the where you did your dissertation, where were those from? Columbia Pacific University in San Rafael, California. All right. And what type of school is that? It is a uh, educational uh, facility, basically a school without walls. A what? School without walls. All right. What is a school without walls? You are, uh, can take your training and education uh, wherever. Okay. Uh, it was much of the work by correspondence? And phone, fax. When did you uh, uh, start the coursework at uh, Columbia Pacific University? About 1980. Okay. And... Was that, did that coursework have some relationship to non-traditional group activity? My master's work was working in the intelligence work for small agencies, and my doctoral dissertation was on uh, mind control cults and their effects on the objectives of law enforcement. All right, now, when did you develop this interest in the non-traditional, well, first of all, define for the jury what non-traditional <coughs> groups are there I specifically teach people to look at groups group behavior group activities uh, from the malevolent side everybody's got the right to believe whatever they wish and uh, I teach them to look at these groups that, for what they are uh, whether it be a, a CULT or an occult group or uh, a gang member or uh, a, a type of cult that uh, causes malevolent, has malevolent tendencies to it. All right. And what are malevolent tendencies? Bad. Break Bad. law. Okay. And when, when did you develop this interest in 
studying nontraditional group activities? About 1967, 68, when we started seeing some of these groups that were cause-orientated on the campuses raising some havoc. And after developing this interest, did you uh, contact schools with walls to try to pursue that study? I, I was going through those type of schools until 1976. Uh, what, what do you mean you were? I, I was going to Terra Technical College in Fremont, Ohio. Then I graduated uh, with a degree in psychology from Heidelberg College. All right. And after that, did you also uh, seek to pursue a course of study at a school with walls? Yeah, I ran into a case in 1976. I threw, threw me for a loop, and then uh, I went out, tried to get the lateral transfers, went out and did some study, realized that wasn't work. Then, yes, sir, I did go to uh, schools with walls to get additional help. All right. And were, did those schools that with walls, did they offer... Uh, the type of studies uh, in this non-traditional group activity? No, sir. Now, if you could, if you could explain a little bit about your uh, background in law enforcement experience uh, that relates to the non-traditional group area or occult area. Well, I started, like I said, in, 19, in the late 60s working cause-oriented groups. These are groups that have a purpose or a design or uh, have some interest and they, they're out there to further them. And I, Can you give us an example of that? SDS, yeah. The SDS, Students United for Freedom and Peace. Those things what we commonly saw on the campuses. This was back in the 60s? Yes, they, yes it was. Okay. And, and what other experience did you have with uh, non-traditional groups or a cult? Well, I come from a small town in Ohio and we started hearing cases involving some cults, C-U-L-T-S, and I started checking on it. I thoroughly was, couldn't believe why people would leave homes, give up their money, and so forth. It became a, an interest to me, and I looked into it, delved into it, studied it, anything I could get a hold of. And as a result of, of those uh, interests that you developed, uh, have you also, for instance, when you were at, uh, in Los Angeles and San Francisco, did you further that interest? Yes, that's all I worked while I was out there on the streets working. Uh, I tried to buy, uh, be profitalized by these groups, see how they worked, uh, see what their sales pitch was. I, I went to uh, the American Church of Satan. Uh, I went to... When you say you went to, uh, you saying I you were a member? Or? No, no. <laughs> I went to where they held their meetings and uh, looked at how their rooms were set up. Uh, I went to their bookstores. Uh, uh, at that time, didn't know what a book of shadows was. Uh, learned right from the street on up what the different groups was. Went to uh, and uh, worked with police officers, uh, a female police officer who I respect very much. And she helped me a lot. And did you also interview uh, people involved in this activity? Over the years, yes, sir, I did. Also, when I was doing my uh, dissertation, uh, the school I attended, they had what they call an ISP, or Independent Study Project. And uh, I, I had to, uh, part of my dissertation was the results of that uh, review. Uh, I talked to close to 500 of them. 
How many? About 500. Okay. 500? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, at the present time, approximately how many calls per week do you receive in regard to non-traditional groups? About 65, average. And of those 65 calls, approximately, what percent is related to Satanism? About 80 percent. Now, have you previously uh, qualified as expert in, uh, in both state and federal court? Yes, sir, I have. Counter, we would submit uh, Mr. Griffiths at this time as an expert. Mr. Griffiths, Columbia Pacific University, is that where you went to school? Yes, sir, that's what I testified to. And, and that's basically a mail order college, isn't it? Where you can send in information and get a degree. Isn't that what it is? No, sir. I, I don't. I don't understand that. That's not how that place works. It's not how, in other words, so this little flyer that I have from Columbia Pacific University about business reply mail, send it in on how to get, an, how to get a degree. That's not where you went? Is that where you went to, is that where you went to college? Yes, it was, but I don't think that was a question you asked, sir. Okay. How many, tell the jury what classes you attended. Uh, let's back up just a second. What, what year did you graduate from high school? 1955. Okay. And when did you go to college? First time I went to college was 1956. 1956. And where did you go to college in 1956? Delbert College associated with Western Reserve, now okay. Case Western Reserve. Did you ever get a degree there? No, sir. Okay. Did you ever, didn't you, you, I think you indicated you said you got a technical degree from a community college? Yes, sir. Okay, and when did you get that degree? It was 1974-75. And what was that degree in? Uh, associate degree in police science. An associate degree? Yes, sir. Okay. And did you have to go to classes? Oh, yes. And take tests? Yes, sir. And get a report card or grades? Yes. Okay. And have a transcript? All right. Yes, sir. Okay. Now, did you later go to a four-year college? Yes, sir. And when did you go to a four-year college? I start, I actually was going to both of them at the same time. Okay. Constantly. Were you working at all? Yeah, yeah I certainly was. Okay. So you were, were you, where were you working? I was, uh, uh, I was uh, working at the Tiffin Police Department, I believe, at the rank of lieutenant at that time. Okay. So you were a full-time police officer and enrolled as a full-time college student in two different colleges? Yes, sir. Okay. And when did you, you got it, did you get it, you got two degrees, one in a technical college and one a four-year degree, is that correct? Yes, sir. And that was a BA? Magna Cum Laude, yes, sir. Okay. And what year was that? 76. Okay. Now, when you went and got that BA degree, did you have to go to classes? Yes, sir. And have professors? Yes, sir. And take tests? Yes, sir. And get grades? Yes, sir. And have a transcript? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, when you went out to this mail order college, Columbia Pacific University, what classes did you take? No classes. What, did you take tests? Yes. Okay, what test did you take? Uh, 
predominantly written. Okay. Uh, objective question. Okay. And and while you were enrolled at this college in California, where did you live? Uh, in Tiffin. Tiffin, Ohio. Yes, sir. Okay. And you took no classes. Had no, no professors. Oh yes, I didn't say that. You didn't ask that question. Okay. No, but no classes. No classes. No classes. Okay. And when did you start in school there? Around 1980, sir. 1980. And you got a master's degree? That's what you told us. You yes, got sir. a master's degree? Yes, sir. And how long did it take you, without taking classes, to get that master's degree? Two years. Okay. It was a, it was a combined master doctoral program. The total program lasted... Uh, three years. Three years? Yes, sir. So in three years, you got a, a master's and a Ph.D.? Yes, sir. And didn't go to class? I was at the campus a couple times, but I did not attend classes, sir. They don't have classes at this campus, do they? No, sir. Are, are you, I think you told Mr. Fogelman that other schools don't offer classes like this. Are you telling us Harvard and Stanford... Ohio State, Michigan State, they don't offer classes that deal with the psychology of non-traditional groups? Is that what you're telling this jury? That those you can't go to those schools and study this kind of stuff? Consular, this was 19, at that period of time. 1980? The answer to that is no, because I went to them. In 1980? I went and asked for them, yes, sir. In 1980, you couldn't go to Stanford or Michigan State and take a class on the psychology of non-traditional groups. Is that what you're telling us? Not and work and not continue, no, sir. Not, not if you were going to continue to be a full-time cop. Police officer. Right. The only way you could... You're not saying that these courses weren't offered. They're just saying to you couldn't offer them without... You, you had to go to class to get a degree there, wouldn't you? I went to Bowling Green, Toledo University... Uh, Marion Campus, Ohio State, uh, the uh, campus of Bowling Green uh, up by the islands, and one of Ohio State and Ohio University. I could not even get a weekend program. Could you get a full-time program? Not in the area that I wanted to, no, sir. So you could not, you're telling us you could not go to school and go to class and get a degree in this not, type of subject. You had to go to this kind of college. Not at this time. You can't at Toledo U now. Okay. Now this lateral transfer, you were in LA and San Francisco for two weeks. Is that right? Each, yes sir. Two weeks. Yes sir. Okay. Now these 65 to 75 calls that you say and 80% relate to Satanism, those are just suspicions, aren't they? They're not, they're not things you actually follow up on, are they? Yes, I do. You follow up on every one of these Not, 65 calls a week? I give information out and or give them people in their area to follow up with. Okay. Is this your full-time job? Is this all you do for a living? Yeah. Do consulting work? With, yeah. with, with police departments? Not with just police departments, sir. I testified earlier with, with uh, uh, mental health educators, and besides doing a consulting, I do give lectures, sir. But it's all in this area, isn't it? Yes, sir. You derive all your living 
from going around spreading satanic panic, don't you? Absolutely not, sir. Now, where have you? How many criminal trials have you testified in? Criminal trials. How many criminal trials have you testified in? Couple hundred. You've testified in a couple of hundred criminal trials. How many of those couple of hundred criminal trials have you testified in as an expert in satanic activities? One. One. And where was that? Michigan. And what was the name of the person who was on trial? I told you earlier, I, I don't remember his you name. You don't remember, he, do you? His name is, first name is Jeff, and he's in Ionia State Prison. When was it? About 1987. 1987. And you think because you testified in one trial, you're an expert? I've testified in hundreds of trials, sir. But not related to cult activities. You did all that when you were a police officer, didn't you? When you were on the beat, making arrests. But as an expert, in this field, you've only done it one time. Is that right? One time. Is that your answer? No, I testified three times as an expert. In a criminal trial? That wasn't a question. Sir. Yes, it was. In a criminal trial. Governor, Mr. Ford asked the question, and then when he starts to get the response, he changes his question. We would object and let the witness have an opportunity to answer. Let him answer the question. My question is, Dr. Hunt. Your Honor, I'm in my objection. His question has already been asked. The question was, how many times have you testified as an expert in the occult? And I think the witness should be allowed to answer that question before Mr. Ford interposes another one. If I ask that question, Your Honor, let him answer. I thought I asked him in criminal trials. But that's all right. How many times have you? You've been in business now for how many years as a consultant? Since 1986. Okay. And you've testified how many times as an expert on this stuff? Three times. And how many of those were criminal? Once. And you think that qualifies you as an expert? That's up to the court. Do you think you're an expert? I know what I'm talking about. Do you think you're an expert? I never hold, I don't hold myself out as, I know a lot about the topic, yes, sir. That's not my question. Do you think you're an expert? Your Honor, the question has been asked and answered. No, it didn't. He didn't answer it. He said he knew a lot about the subject. I want to know, does he think he's an expert? Do you? Okay, so a couple things. Number one, as I was listening back to that, I realized that I was wrong. That was not the abstract or in-camera review that actually happened prior to. This was actually testimony in front of the jury. It was earlier in the trial outside of the presence of the jury where Dale Griffiths was evaluated as an expert by the prosecution and defense, and the judge ultimately deemed that he is considered an expert, citing that there's no requirement in Arkansas that someone has to have a college degree in order to be an expert, and therefore he was allowed to testify. So that was actually the beginning of his trial testimony that the jury did, in fact, hear. And also, obviously, it ended up being a little more than 12 minutes. That's what I had remembered. The section that I was thinking about of that testimony was 12 minutes, but I think it was closer to 20. But for those of you who had questions about Dr. Griffiths' qualifications and his credentials and how that went down in the courtroom, that was the full audio that you just heard. That's what the jury heard, and that was the questioning about his credentials. So now I think 
we got to take one more short break for ads, and then Mike will get into the rest of the questions that you have. Okay. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All right, Bob, now let's get into some of these listener questions. All right. This first one comes from Jason. He's got three questions to ask. He says, at any point during the trial, were any national crime statistics relating to ritualistic, satanic, or cult-inspired killings ever introduced? No, they weren't. And as we heard from John Douglas later, when the FBI actually did a study into them, it turns out that satanic panic actually was just panic. You know, he said that there was there was two different studies of hundreds of crimes that were believed to be satanic or occult ritual-type killings. Or, or motives, and he said literally zero of them, not a single one ever turned out to be an actual violent crime uh, motivated by Satanism or, or the occult. Uh, but no, none of that came out in the trial, because remember, this was right in the time, right in the heart of the Satanic Panic era. All right, and then he asked, what was the significance of the book discussed with the witness? I'm assuming that the defendant owned the book, but it never seemed to be clarified. Yeah, the one of the defendants did own the book, and we will get into all of that uh, later. But yeah, they were trying to draw, basically, with Griffiths and through most of the trial testimony, what they were trying to do was, number one, establish that the killing, the motive behind the killing was a cult or Satanism in nature, that that was the motive, and then try to tie the defendant, at least one of them, into Satanism and the occult. So it was kind of a two-edged sword there, but so... Uh, Griffiths there was laying foundation for the rest of their case. Okay, and that kind of sums up his third question, which was about what role the book played in the context of the case. Yeah, and that was basically it. They were, it was, if I remember correctly, in the chronology of the trial, uh, they had already put the defendant on the stand and, and already tied him to this book. And then they had Griffiths come on and explain that the the book had to do with Satanism and the occult and even human sacrifice and even child sacrifice. Okay, and Bridget asks, can one really be a Wiccan and a Satanist at the same time? One worships the earth, one worships Satan. Wouldn't that be like saying you're Buddhist and Christian at the same time? So I'm not an expert in either one of these fields or or religions, but I've done a little bit of research into it, and I've actually even talked to the defendant uh, they're referring to here, Damien Eccles, about this. And it seems to me that, yeah, those are two very, very different things, and, and they don't mesh together. Um, I think the the best quote about it I had actually came from Damien when he told me you know, at, at that time, and it's funny because other people have said the same thing to me, that you know, back at that time, anything that wasn't Christianity in that area of the country was Satanism. You know, that's what everything got thrown. You know, so if you were if you were a Hindu or a Buddhist, it was it was Satanism, you know, right. kind of there. It was, it was, it, that's the opinion of those that were kind of pegged that way. But But no, the two are not the same at all. Listener Caitlin asks, listening to 512, I was wondering if someone with a legitimate PhD in religious studies was ever brought in during the appeals. Um, you know, I don't know. I haven't gotten too deeply into that. I don't think so. I think that basically they had, you know, John Douglas and other experts, you know, even Warner Spitz and Suveron and all them come in and say that, you know, from a law enforcement perspective or investigators or even people that, you know, perform autopsies, that they believe there was nothing on this crime scene that indicated 
any sort of ritualistic behavior at all. So that you know, I don't think, and I could be wrong about that, uh, but I don't think they had an, an another like occultist expert come on and say that he's wrong. I think they went the other route. They just went with more the the law enforcement side or the investigative side, saying that that there was just no elements of what he was talking. And, and when you listen, you know, you heard, it, and I guess now that it's played, I'll give you kind of my opinion on it. When you listen to it, you hear he's describing all these things that equal ritual killing, yet none of these things exist on the crime scene. You know, he's talking about. Yeah, well, and, and you know they're talking about the genitals. He says, "Yeah, well, they'll just they'll display the genitals in a way, except for nothing was displayed here. You know, the, the boys were submerged in water and hidden. Uh, and then he has, you know, that you know the, the, he can. Well, the water is because oftentimes they'll have these rituals near water, but this, you know, they're they're, they're concealed in the water. And then you know he talks about you know in, in the the book he's citing, well, they'll have these nine foot circles, but there's no nine foot circle here. They talk about burning of incense. There was no incense here." They talk about pentagrams and things like that, and there was none of that there. Uh, and I think that, you know, and, and that's not to say that that we know right now that the conviction wasn't good or anything like that. You know, it's it, you know it's, it's certainly possible as we move through the investigation that they got the right guys, and we'll talk about that as we move along. But uh, as far as this aspect of it, the element of it being a satanic ritual killing, to me, is just ridiculous. There's nothing there. And that's why all the experts said it took two seconds to tell that this that's not what this was. You know, as a ritual killing, there are rituals in in and there are displays, like Griffiths had said, and none of that's there. I mean, and in, in fact, they went the other direction. You know, in a, in, a, in a satanic ritual, you don't do everything you can do to try to hide it. It's a it's a ritual. It's meant to be displayed, and there was just none of that there. In my opinion, I think the whole entire idea that this was a some sort of occult or satanic or any kind of ritual killing is is absurd. But that's just my opinion. All right, Bob, now we're going to move into some general questions about the case. Okay. Matt wants to know, did anyone ever make an animation of the three boys' movements on the day of the murders? Yes, uh, listener Abby Scott did, and I think her husband helped too. I don't remember his first name off the top of my head. Uh, they sent us an animation, and they they made a, sent me a YouTube link. They uploaded it to YouTube, and it's, and it's really good, uh, and it, it tracks their movements, but it's silent. And it's my fault there's been a delay there because I said, well, if you send me a script... I can actually record a voice over to to embed in the video so we can you know kind of talk through it and I just never got around to recording the voiceover so um just the other day I told Abby why don't she, why doesn't she go ahead and do the voiceover it's her project it's her baby uh, and so she's going to do that so as soon as she Abby gets me um the final the link to the final video including her voiceover then we'll post that on all of our social media and we'll announce it here so people can go check it out Awesome I think a lot of people are looking forward to that Okay, and Lori says, can someone direct me to where I can watch the entire trial? There is nowhere where you can watch the entire trial. So I pull a lot of the audio clips that I have that you guys hear here off of the um, the Callahan site that we talked about a lot where the case documents are. Uh, there are some audio files on there. Uh, a lot of the links are broken. They're a little tricky to fix, but um, you can actually fix them. So if you click on a link and it says it's broken, look in the the address bar. And it'll say like Callahan dot eight K dot whatever um, from there. What happened was they had changed servers a long time ago, and it should be Callahan dot my site dot whatever's next. And this is complicated, I guess. For but uh, for if you're trying to listen to some of the audio and you're having trouble on the Callahan site, just go into the address bar and delete out eight K and replace it with my site. Thanks, Shanna French, for letting me know about that. I need to be able to hear it. But there's no video. the The video that you saw in the in the like Paradise Lost and West of Memphis. That was all recorded by the people making Paradise Lost, and they own the rights to all of that. And that industry, and it's nothing about with these particular people, 
in that industry, the movie making industry, they don't share things like that. They do not release their footage, their proprietary footage to other people. So there, there is no that I'm aware of full video of the trial that's accessible to anyone. All right. This next one comes from Zach Weaver and he kind of answers his own question, but I think this will be interesting for the listeners. All right. Let's hear what Zach has. Zach says the phrase quote, trappings of occultism is used several times during the episode to describe the murders. Can you explain what they mean when they use the term, quote, trappings? He says, I'm hoping this will be brought up during the follow-up because he feels it's an important term for people to understand, that the term trappings can easily be misleading and damning if not understood properly. In general thinking, most people associate the word trap with bad things and most likely don't understand that trappings simply means that it shows signs and features of. He says, hopefully this helps some listeners with the concept. Thanks again, guys. Well, yeah, I think Zach did do a good job there of, of answering his own question, but it is good information. He actually saved me the time of looking up the technical uh, uh, definition of trappings. So yeah, that's it. Trappings just means that, you know, because a few other people ask that question too. Uh, and yeah, it just means that, you know, it has signs of or indicators of the occultism. But he did, he, Dale Griffiths really did like the word trappings. He used it a lot. All right, and Sharon says, have you considered that the grid-like bruising on Michael's thighs could be from a boot being pressed into them? Um, well, first of all, I think it was actually on Christopher Byer's thighs. Um, I have to go back and look, but they don't look like a boot print to me at all. I have seen them, unfortunately. People have have theorized that they could be, uh, what is it, like, like, like rebar. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some theories out there that there was a manhole involved and things like that, uh, and that maybe it came from there. People said they could be could just come from, you know, riding on bicycle handlebars or riding on, the, you know, bicycle seat. Remember some of the bruises we don't we can't date or age the bruises because you know like some of them were described as being yellow and you know greenish colored which would indicate usually an older bruise uh, so we don't know a whole lot about them there's a lot of theories out there about the bruises I don't pretend to be an expert to know uh, but no definitely to me doesn't look like a boot no all right and Carol says if there was a shoelace cut in two was it clean cut now she's talking about the bindings on Michael Moore here she says that would imply a knife. If the murderer used a knife to control them, it's curious that he wouldn't have used it for an assault. It's a good question, and we don't. Unfortunately, this case is just so odd the way it's being handled, and still to this day by uh, by the West Memphis Police Department not letting anybody see the evidence. But nobody knows. So if you're online and you see somebody that shows you or tells you that they know how long the shoelaces are, they're full, they're full of it, is what they are, because no one knows. The defense didn't know. The prosecution never said it, and no one's ever been allowed to go inspect the shoelaces, for starters. So, yeah, you have Michael Moore. Remember, we have, between the three boys, you've got six shoes. So that's six shoelaces, but one of the shoes still had the lace in it. So you've actually got five shoelaces, but six bindings. And so Michael Moore, both of the bindings, as we talked about last week, were, it look it seems, by the description and the couple pictures that I have seen, it looks like it's probably one shoelace cut in half. Now, I say cut, but I don't know that it is cut. I, I, I probably should have been more careful about using that term because uh, some people did ask some questions about that on the, the fan page after that episode. But uh, th- there's a lot of theories out there. My personal opinion is it's likely just one of the boy's shoelaces uh, that either was cut in half or broken half. Uh, it was asked if it was a clean cut. It It's hard to tell. It's not the greatest image quality, but it doesn't look like it in, in the fact that you, you can't really tell because it's too blurry to see if the end is frayed. Uh, but you can see there's there's a, a part of the, I don't know how to describe this on audio, but you look at a flat shoelace uh, and then there's like part of it that sticks out, like, a, like some of the strings that stick out past it. 
Um, so make not like if you cut it with scissors or cut it with a sharp knife, it would just be clean and flat. But these have it does have some frays or some string that extend out past the cut. So who knows? But that still could have happened with a knife. But so I don't I don't know. But you know, some people have said, well, it must be you know it would be long enough. I even said early in the season that it wouldn't be long enough. But when you look at the bindings closer, you see that with with Byers and Branch, their bindings. Number one, there was more space between their wrists and their ankles, um, you know, obviously eating up a more more string. And then some of them were like doubled up or it was like wrapped twice around their wrist or wrapped twice around their, their ankles, eating up more string, where, where Michael Moore's were, there was no doubling up of them and it seemed to be shorter. So I think that it could be the same length lace that was used on the other boys cut in half and it's just shorter shorter bindings. So I don't know, but you know, as far as how it got, you know, you're right. If it was cut with a knife, then I think. Well, and and the question was that would be weird if you had a knife. Why wouldn't you use that in the assault? Uh, so I guess to address that first, it's it's hard to say unless, like, again, if the if the attacks weren't planned, you know, if it just things got out of hand quickly and the killer just kind of snapped and, you know, like I said, it's possible grabbed all three boys and just held them underwater all at the same time. Uh, that and that would be easy enough, I think, to do for a grown man with three eight year olds. And so they didn't think to pull the knife out because they weren't planning to kill them. Or another option is, you know, Spitz has it wrong and Freddy has it right. And there were knife wounds. And, and they did use a knife because, you know, that would certainly be an indicator of that because if, if the laces were cut with a knife. But like I said, unfortunately, we don't have any way of knowing. They're, they weren't reported or analyzed well enough to know. No one ever measured them or if they did. They never made that document public. But, you know, the, the other thing is laces break. You know, they, they, laces break all the time. It happened with my kids not just a couple of weeks ago. It happens with me all the time, um, you know. So it's easy, you know, to see if somebody was pulling the laces out and they had a frayed spot and they snap and they say, "Oh, I got two laces right here." Could be done with a rock. There's, there's a, you know, people have suggested with a lighter. I will say I don't think it was done with a lighter because of those frays and strings that I was talking about that were hanging out. I think if you used a lighter to burn it in half, that it would be clean because uh, yeah. we we actually did that in the fire department. Um, whenever we would cut rope, you'd burn the ends of it off so it wouldn't fray. Um, so I don't think that's it. Um, so I don't know. There's it's kind of a mystery. And then there was also some interesting theories discussed on the the fan page about why not just use the six lace. You know, there's six laces, six bindings. Why cut one in half or break one in half or you know whatever the case may be. And gosh, I, w- I wish I remembered who said it, but uh, uh, one of the listeners had a really good theory that I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. So the the killer did a pretty good job of hiding, obviously, the bodies and the clothing, but then the one shoe's floating up, uh, and that's and that's how the bodies were discovered. And in fact, there ended up being like a hat and another shoe too. Um, they were floating up, so it it could kind of go to the other way on this. But one theory was, what if one of the shoes already was in the water and floated downstream and wasn't available to the killer? You know, meaning so that the shoe that, and I'll have to go back and look and see if the one that uh, was found or was seen from the, from the bank by by Steve Jones, uh, if that one had the laces in it, because that's a possibility that when he you know, was gathering stuff up and trying to uh, do the concealment and do the bindings, it looks around and one of the shoes is gone. It had floated downstream and hung up on a branch somewhere. Uh, so that's a possibility. But yeah, there's still a lot of mystery around the shoelaces. There's still debate on whether they were pre-mortem or post-mortem, uh, whether they're bound. You know, you do have Peretti saying in his original autopsy report that he sees bruising uh, on the bindings, but then he also says that then he took skin slides and put them under a microscope, and under the microscope said there was actually no hemorrhaging, uh, which would contradict it. In my opinion, that means 
it looked like there was bruising, so he decided to take a closer look and found out there wasn't hemorrhaging, which would mean post-mortem. But then in his later testimony, he testifies during the Rule 37 hearings later in the appeals, he testifies that, no, he believes they were absolutely pre-mortem, whereas, you know, again, Spitz says they're post-mortem. My personal opinion is probably post-mortem uh, based on the lack of hemorrhaging. And let's not forget the fact that the way they were bound um, with those shoelaces, it, it wouldn't restrain you. You know, you have, and, and somebody was asking if, and I don't know if you're going to get to this or not. I know we're, we're, we're running way long right now already, but um, somebody had asked that was still a little confused about the bindings. I realized in one of our most recent episodes, I actually said it wrong. I said right to left and left to right, and it was incorrect. But so the, the way they were bound, to be clear, was right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle. So there was no crisscross. Uh, and there, there was just a day somebody was on the fan page. They were saying they still didn't understand, like, why did I think that means it wouldn't restrain them? Well, it's because, remember, there's also, there's, especially with Stevie and Christopher, you got, I don't know the measurement, but it looks like probably a good 12 inches. Now, this is 12 inches on somebody that's only 60 inches tall. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a 20% of their body length. Uh, there is between the wrist and ankle. So if you imagine your right wrist attached to your right ankle with, for an adult, probably a foot and a half in between the two, that's what I'm saying. You could just swing your hand around to the front and and get both your hands together and untie it. So I did just want to make clear that up because just just because based on the discussion, there was still some confusion on it. All right, Nick says, did anyone ever confirm a clubhouse in the woods? He can't remember which boy supposedly had one, but was it ever confirmed? He says it may speak to who would know where the boys were quote running away to. So it was Michael Moore who said that he had a he didn't say clubhouse. He said secret hideout. And, and then there's other witnesses, which we haven't even gotten there yet. We will get there. But there are a couple other people, one specifically that says that there was a treehouse in the woods. Police actually went into the woods looking for a treehouse, and there was not one. It just doesn't exist. Um, I think they found maybe some, like, two-by-fours somewhere out there. They weren't in a tree. They put a ladder up in a tree looking for nail holes or anything like that. Um, there was a whole lot done, but at the end of the day, there was no tree fort in the woods. And then I think they tried to turn that into, well, there was a spot where there was a tree with the roots exposed that had kind of a hollow underneath it, probably from washout from the creek. And it was like, well, this must be the tree house, you know, the, tr- the tree fort or whatever. But uh, no, there was no, there was no structure built in those woods. And then lastly, Karen says, I'm just wondering, was the order of episodes intentional? If yes, could someone explain what the intention is? I mean, I would have much rather heard this episode before the episode Bob did on the Turtles. Thanks. And as a follow-up on that, some listeners want to know why you went straight to the expert testimony at trial, as opposed to starting at the beginning of the investigation into the defendants. Okay, uh, so to answer Mary's question, yeah, they're intentional. I mean, we figure them out as we go. You know, we write, uh, you know, we plan, I should say, like six episode arcs where we kind of know where we're going and, you know, for four to six weeks, but every week we put each episode together, you know, we're working on it in that week. We're doing this all in real time. Um, but yeah, we, we did have kind of a plan and how we wanted to address it. In this case, it was because of all of the preconceived notions and I believe misconceptions about so much of this case that I chose number one, I wanted to do a heavy focus on the victims because that's never been done. So that's how we started for several episodes, as you all know. And then as we move forward, Instead of doing what everyone else has always done with this case, every other podcast, every other documentary, everything that's ever been done, they always, you know, tell the story of the West Memphis Three. 
And to me, that's not the story. It's all about what I've been calling the forgotten three. It's about Stevie, Michael, and Christopher and finding justice for them. And so because of all the misconceptions and preconceived notions, I chose to start our path with the path that I believe an investigation should have gone. And by saying that, when I say that, I mean the path that I would have taken as an investigator. And to get to the point where we come to a crossroad where we have to backtrack, which is where we're at now. And so, you know, I have explained, again, a lot of people might disagree with damn near everything I say, and that's okay. I mean, like I said before, I'm no expert. I'm just, I'm the whole purpose here is that we're all just ordinary people that are, are putting our heads together to try to figure this thing out. I just happen to be the one with the microphone. But, uh, you know, when I say that, it's like, so I've, I've tried to explain why I did everything I did, you know, or why I have every opinion that I have without just giving it to you. Even, for example, the profile. Many people disagree with it, but I tried to at least explain this is why I think this and this is why I think that. So the idea there was to cut through all the 25 years of BS and preconceived notions and misconceptions and say, look, these are the facts. And then here's some of my opinions about those facts. But but then we, we've reached the point where we do need to go back and say, okay, that's what I would have done. That's what I think should have been done. And, and now we're going to go back and say, but this is what was in fact done. Uh, and then for, to your question, Mike, about the listeners that wanted to know why we started with Griffiths, well, it, this case is complicated. I mean, and, and that is an under freaking statement. And, and so the reason that Griffiths comes in is because we're going to begin this week talking about how the police got to Damien Eccles. Okay, so we're, we're, we're going to start the police investigation that was running parallel to the other in police investigation that we've already talked about, uh, the early leads with you know the Chris Morgan and Brian Holland and Bojangles. Uh, but at the same time, there's this other one into Damien Eccles. And so we're going to talk about that. But the problem is Dale Griffiths wasn't introduced until we get to trial where he testifies as the expert going towards motive or explaining what he believes, the state believes the motive was. But the problem is that Dale Griffiths actually enters the scene a year and a half before, a year and a half before the murders. And we'll talk about that this week, but uh, he actually was consulting uh, with some law enforcement officials connected to this case about Damien Eccles a year and a half before the murders ever occurred. So it was important to give you the foundation and the background into Griffiths before we get into that part, so we don't have to constantly hit pause and say, hey, uh, you know, this officer is talking to this guy named Dale Griffiths. Who's Dale Griffiths? So we, we, we laid that foundation first and explained that first and got that all out there. And now we're going to go back and hopefully we'll be able to move pretty well in chronological order as we move forward this week. And I think, Mike, that's probably a good spot to stop for here because I'm starting to get into what we're going to talk about this week and I need to finish uh, writing the outline for that episode. I will tell you as a little spoiler, uh, for those of you that have been waiting for this, uh, in this week, uh, when we started talking about the investigation into Damien Eccles, for the first time in this episode, you will actually hear directly from Damien Eccles, and that's going to happen on Sunday, two days from today. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo, and thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, managing, and maintaining our website. 
Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can follow along on our Facebook page. And of course, there's the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page, which is where most of the discussion happens. Personally, I prefer to live on Twitter, and you can follow there at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget about that voicemail line. You can leave us a voicemail with a question, a comment, a concern, a tip, anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the phone number to our voicemail line is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Awesome. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that. Me too. I'm just going to shake it off. You know, what you said was fine. It was just that you like looked at me like I was supposed to say something else. And I didn't know what else to say. Right. You do that to me all the time. I know. Except when you do it to me, your mouth's open. You go like this. And I like, I don't know if you want me to laugh. Just react, you know, respond like a human being. All right, let's go. All right. Lunchtime. It's lunchtime. Bobby hungry. (laughs) Gotta move it along. The occultism. But he did, he, Dale Griffiths really did like the word trappings. He used it a lot. Yeah, he did. Between the three boys, you've got, what's that, six shoes? Yeah. (laughs) You've got six shoes.